This episode was previously recorded and broadcast to a live audience and has not been edited for content. Please excuse any references to slides and Q&A. Thank you for joining us. And the hush fills the room. <laughs> Welcome, everybody. Welcome to our 39th annual Jefferson B. Fordham debate. Um, I'm very pleased to have the honor of welcoming you. We are excited to be back in person after being virtual the last several years. So it is delightful to see everybody's faces today. My name is Elizabeth Cronk Warner. My pronouns are she and hers. And I have the privilege of being the dean here at the SJ Quinney College of Law. Um, before I get into my very brief welcoming remarks, I do want to start off by acknowledging that the land that we're on, which is named for the Ute tribe, is the traditional and ancestral homeland of the Shoshone, Paiute, Goshu, and Ute tribes. The University of Utah recognizes and respects the enduring relationship that exists between many indigenous peoples and their traditional homelands. We respect the sovereign relationship between tribes, states, and the federal government, and we affirm the University of Utah's commitment to a partnership with Native nations and urban Indian communities through research, education, and community outreach activities. And this is one of those wonderful community outreach activities where we would gather to talk about the important issues of the day. And certainly none could perhaps be more uh, talked about these days um, than the abortion issue. So I'm really pleased to be hosting this debate, not only because it's a hot topic, but also I can tell you in the last week, I've had so many conversations with Democrats, Republicans, so many people who say, we don't really talk to each other anymore. Uh, we're kind of two ships passing in the night. And so I feel really privileged to host this debate where we have an opportunity to hear two sides of an issue um, and really examine and have that conversation. It's truly an honor. I do want to acknowledge that the Fordham debate is named in honor Professor Jefferson B. Fordham, who was an outstanding legal scholar and defender of individual and civil rights, who joined the University of Utah College of Law in 1972. And and whose estate endowed this debate. So we're very pleased to have this um, because of Professor Jefferson Fordham. So it's my privilege. We have two amazing speakers with us today, and I'm very excited. Um, and they will be introduced to you shortly. But I'm going to introduce the man who's going to introduce that. Um, so it is my absolute pleasure to introduce one of my newest colleagues, Professor Jonas Anderson, um, who's a professor of law here at SJ Quinney College of Law. And I have to say, I'm super excited because we were able to recruit him away from the American College of Law in Washington, D.C. So it's been just a privilege to have him here. He's an international and national expert in uh, IP, and he even has literally changed the course of patent litigation in the United States. I mean, who can say that. Um, he recently joined our faculty and he's chairing our programs committee. And so he just jumped in and did a great job of organizing today's debate. So I thank him. I also want to take a moment to thank our amazing staff who helped pull together the event today. So for example, we have Sam Mills here in the background who makes sure that everything goes well. I know Chris Monty was running around before she's in the red jacket. We really appreciate their hard work. This is one of our signature events and it would not be possible without them. Um, so with that, I will turn it over to my amazing, phenomenal, fantastic colleague, Professor Jonas Anderson. Thank you, Elizabeth. That was great. Um, good morning, everyone. As, as uh, I was introduced, I'm the amazing Jonas Anderson. I'm 
um, a professor of law at the law school. It's my distinct pleasure to welcome all of you to this debate um, on a really pressing legal issue. Um, so if you've followed the news at all, you know, the biggest legal happening in the last year has been the overturning of Roe versus Wade. In Dobbs versus Jackson uh, Women's Health Organization, the Supreme Court overturned Roe versus Wade and gave states or Congress uh, the power and the ability to regulate abortion. Um, so that's a decision that's met with uh, lots of um, animation on both sides. That's not what we're debating today. Today we're debating a more pressing issue. And that's what can states really do in light of um, Dobbs to regulate abortion? What can they do to stop other states from regulating them? So today's debate will be, uh, or the re resolution is be it resolved that states abortion shield laws run contrary to principles of US federalism and constitutional law. So uh, for those that don't know, abortion shield laws are protections that states put in place um, in favor of abortion access uh, that they grant to their abortion providers. So for instance, uh, Connecticut, which has one of these abortion shield laws, um, has a law that makes it so if a patient from say Texas um, travels to Connecticut, uh, has an abortion, the uh, providers of the healthcare in, in Connecticut um, have some protections against Texas law and lawsuits against them. We'll get into the particularities. Um, I'll let them get into the particularities, but that is basically what we're talking about. Is that constitutional? Um, is in, in, um, uh, Does it uh, conform with our, our principles of comedy, et cetera? Um, so let me introduce uh, the speakers because our speakers, they are really fantastic. On, on my far left um, is Charles Siller. He holds the Roy W. and Eugenia C. McDonald Endowed Chair in Civil Procedure at the University of Texas at Austin. Uh, his research focuses on aggregate lawsuits, attorney's fees, professional responsibility, and healthcare law and policy. For over a decade, he worked with a group of empirical researchers on studies of medical malpractice litigation in Texas. And he served as the associate uh, and, and associate reporter on the principles of aggregate litigation, uh, which the American Alliance suit published in 2010. His most recent books are Overcharged, Why Americans Pay Too Much for Healthcare, and Medical Malpractice Litigation, How It Works, and Why Tort Reform uh, Hasn't Helped. To his right is Rachel Rebuchet. She is the Dean of, of Temple University Beasley School of Law and the James E. Beasley Professor of Law. Dean Rebuchet is a leading scholar in reproductive health and family law. She is an author of Governance Feminism, an introduction, and an editor of Governance Feminism, Notes from the Field. She's also the editor of Feminist Judgments, Family Law, Opinions Rewritten, and an author of the sixth edition of the casebook, Family Law. Uh, Dean Rebuchet's recent research also includes articles in law reviews and in peer-reviewed journals on abortion law, uh, relational contracts, gestational sur surrogacy, prenatal genetic testing and genetic counseling, collaborative divorce, parental involvement laws, and international reproductive rights. And so uh, just to give you a preview of what's going to happen, this is not a, a cable news style debate where the, the two debaters go at each other and, and attack each other, but a serious substantive debate. The format um, we've agreed on is that Dean Rebuchet will start. She will give us a 15-minute um, intro about her position. She'll also talk about some of the specific laws we're going to be talking about. Then we'll turn over to Professor Silver. He will also have 15 minutes of debate. Then we'll have five minutes each for rebuttal. And at the end, we'll have five minutes each 
uh, for conclusory uh, remarks. Then we'll turn over to you all and people at home um, to ask questions. The only way to ask questions I've been told is it is uh, using slido.com and entering the code hashtag debate. It's pretty easy, but you have to, have to use your phones to ask any questions. I'm not allowed to actually just call on people um, in the audience. Uh, so you have, you have to do it uh, online and I'll get the, the questions for you. So um, enough of uh, me speaking. With that, let me turn the time over to Professor or Dean Rebuchet and please uh, join me in welcoming her. Thank you, uh, Professor Anderson, for that very warm welcome. And, and thank you, Dean Cronk Warner, for inviting us here and hosting us uh, and for your warm remarks. And thank you to my uh, debate part, no adverse ad opponent, um, uh, Professor Charlie Silver. Uh, it's been so wonderful to get to know you in preparation of this talk. And I am going to show my hand. I think that both of us were a little resistant to the debate format because I think there is much on which we agree. But I think we'll spend our time here today thinking about some of the nuance of shield laws um, and where really where uh, we might have different perspectives about the trajectory for the rule of law. Spoiler alert, he's pessimistic, I'm optimistic. Okay, uh, so what's the reason this uh, topic is so uh, near and dear to my heart is because th this is an emerging area of law, really, you know, a trajectory that 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 had legs before Dobbs, but is really uh, uh, developed and evolved after Dobbs. And it's part of work that I've been doing with two co-authors, uh, David Cohen at Drexel and Greer Donnelly at Pitt, um, on mapping what are the post-Dobbs questions. And it's a paper that we've written for Columbia Law Review in which we set out questions around federal land preemption, but we spend a lot of time thinking about what states are going to do at the legislative level now that there's uh, no constitutional protection for abortion rights. Indeed, that's the, the takeaway of the Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization holding. And it's not going to surprise anyone in this room, certainly not an understatement that the uh, country's abortion law and regulation is in flux. It is changing. Um, after, after Dobbs, uh, the country's legal uh, landscape for abortion regulation has been patchwork more so than it was before Dobbs, where still geographic disparities in abortion access characterized how we thought about um, the, the ways in which someone could terminate a pregnancy. That state-by-state -state legality is now and continues to be concentrated in the South and Midwest. So at, at the time at, at the time of this debate, 15 states have banned almost all abortion, 14 states from the earliest stages of pregnancy. And there one might uh, suspect that there are additional states um, on on target to ban abortion from earliest stages of pregnancy, imposing both criminal liability and civil liability. But that's only half the story, because before Dobbs was decided, 15 states had proactively protected abortion rights in anticipation of the fall of Roe v. Wade and Planned Parenthood versus Casey. Those states writing abortion rights into their constitutions, into their statutory frameworks, um, protecting abortion rights regardless of what the Supreme Court decided. And most of those laws give um, 
uh, access to pre-viability abortion without restriction, and then post-viability abortion with exceptions such as health, uh, fetal anomaly, right to life. So the emerging legal landscape is one punctuated, defined by interstate conflict. And we're going to see that that conflict, I think, intensify as states seek to impose their policy preferences a- across borders. And, the, and the, the, what we're here today to talk about is, is what are the consequences of those interstate conflicts? Do, are they a fundamental threat to federalism and the constitutional order, or are they a new chapter in an evolving conversation about abortion law and regulation? And it's not hypothetical. So You have, for instance, the Texas Freedom Caucus um, writing a a type of cease and desist letter to Sidley Austin, a law firm, um, basically revealing what will be its legislative agenda next session, top of which is uh, a bill styled after SBA to private cause of action where private individuals sue people who assist Texans leaving Texas to seek abortion where it is legal. trying to sue providers in those states that are providing otherwise legal services within their states for assisting Texans seeking abortion that would be illegal in Texas. Uh, The National Right to Life campaign has already drafted model legislation that applied those travel restrictions, those penalties to people providing services to minors, uh, to people assisting minors to leave states to seek abortions in other states where they're legal. So none of those proposals have come to fruition yet, um, and maybe they won't. Uh, That's something I think we're going to we have a conversation about. But I think in part that's because there are real constitutional questions whether or not states can have extraterritorial reach for their abortion laws. Um, there are lots of reasons to believe that the right to travel under the due process uh, clause of the 14th Amendment, uh, privileges and immunities, protection for interstate commerce via the dormant commerce clause, all these constitutional rights may impede states from reaching outside their borders to apply their laws uh, uh, to people in other states. But none of those provisions have been interpreted broadly or deeply as far as abortion is concerned. And some of them, like privileges and immunities, haven't been very well developed at all. So unanswered questions. Responding to these proposals um, are the shield laws that Professor Anderson mentioned that are the subject of the resolution. And those shield laws, as as he stated, seek to protect in-state providers and those that assist them. So let me just tell you quickly about some major themes, what those laws do, how they contradict the cooperation that typically marks interstate relationships, um, and, and and why I think they don't necessarily upend comedy values that underpin federalism or constitutional protections. Okay. Okay. Excellent. Excellent. Rocking and rolling. Um, All right. So Massachusetts 
has most recent, ha, well, not most recently, but Massachusetts has passed the most comprehensive uh, piece of legislation with Connecticut, New Jersey, Delaware, New York, and California most recently uh, following suit. Uh, Illinois and DC are considering similar laws and governors of 12 states uh, have issued executive orders that provide in-state provider and provider assistance protection. And these laws differed in their language, but some common protections that characterize them uh, are, 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 points of, are points of commonality. So first, SHIELD laws seek to protect in-state provider licenses and malpractice insurance rates. So if a state tries to impose criminal or civil liability on a healthcare professional providing an abortion to someone from another state, that prosecution or lawsuit could be reported to the provider's licensing board, which typically has broad discretion governing ethics and standards of conduct. Being named in a as a defendant too many times or being subject to a disciplinary investigation, even if the provider ultimately prevails, could result in licensure uh, suspension, high malpractice insurance costs, and reputational damage. So shield laws prohibit state medical boards and in-state malpractice insurance companies from taking any adverse action against providers who face out-of-state legal consequences for assisting out-of-state abortion patients. This is not blanket immunity. Rather, it's targeted protection applicable to out-of-state investigations, disciplinary actions, lawsuits, prosecutions arising from services performed in compliance with the provider's home state law. Second, Shield laws attempt to thwart interstate investigations and discovery, both criminal and civil, of care provided to patients from the traveling from other states if that care is legal in the provider's home state. So on the civil side, most states have enacted some form of the Uniform Interstate Depositions and Discovery Act. I mean, who here hasn't heard of the Uniform Interstate Depositions and Discovery Act? Some of you have, um, which simplifies the process for litigants to take depositions and engage in discovery from another state. On the criminal side, um, another well-known piece of you know, uh, model, another well-known model act, the Uniform Act to secure the attendance of witnesses from without a state in criminal proceedings rolls off the tongue, uh, a version of which every state has enacted accomplishes the same goal for witness summons in criminal cases. Even before witnesses are called, police departments usually work together across state lines via formal and informal cooperation agreements. States in passing shield laws have exempted abortion providers from interstate discovery and interstate witness subpoena while prohibiting state and local law enforcement agencies from cooperating with other states' investigations. This only applies to abortions that are legal in the provider state, and such an exemption does not protect providers if they are traveling to an anti-abortion state where the provider could be subject to that state's laws or a judgment entered in that state's courts. Nevertheless, shield laws try to prevent courts and law enforcement agencies in a provider's home state from becoming a cooperating arm of another state's investigation apparatus. Third, 
Shield policies exempt abortion providers from the state's extradition requirements so long as the individual, consistent with Article 4 of the federal constitution, is not fleeing from justice. So this covers the provider who never took, never took a step in Texas, has stayed entirely within Massachusetts. Um, outside of constitutional requirements, some states have uh, extradition laws that permit or obligate the state to extradite an accused criminal if they if uh, if that criminal has even if that criminal has never been in the other state and thus not fled. Shield laws create explicit exceptions to those requirements. Fourth, on the civil side. Shield laws create a cause of action against anyone who interferes with lawful provision of reproductive health care or support. Those provisions recognize out-of-state judgments for the full faith and credit clause of the Constitution, but subject the person seeking to enforce it to a new state tort claim for interfering with reproductive health care provision that was lawful in the state in which it occurred. In passing such a law, Shield states hope to impede out-of-state enforcement actions, hope to chill those actions. And finally, and potentially, uh, maybe uh, most controversially, states can attempt to protect providers who are not only providing care to those traveling to their state, but also to providers mailing medication, abortion pills, the two drug regimen taken before 10, approved for before 10 weeks of pregnancy, uh, pr providing care to those travel, uh, mailing medication, abortion pills, even to states that ban abortion. So telehealth policies and the standard of care typically define the location of care is where the patient is. Teleabortion policies could define the location of care as where the provider is and regardless of where the patient resides. Thus, the provider would not, according to the home state, be in violation of any other state's abortion law or licensure law. Massachusetts has passed this provision. There is no denying that these proposals and laws and the, the, the values that underpin them undermine some basic assumptions that we have around comedy between states and around co uh, cooperation. Intensified interstate conflict um, could no doubt have unintended consequences for other areas of law. And these laws have limitations. Anytime I've been asked to talk about shield laws to policymakers, legislators, or any other audience, it, it can't be said enough that they have, that people who seek protection under them are still going to have risk. These laws are not gonna protect people who travel or return to a state in which there's a judgment against the provider or seek to punish or penalize, reach that provider's conduct within the uh, borders of, of a state that bans abortion. But the question for us today is, do these laws destroy cooperation between states or do they run afoul of constitutional protections uh, that are that protect interstate relationships? And here are some brief reasons why I believe um, they do not, despite their ability to exacerbate conflict. 
So abortion has long divided the states. Before Dobbs, abortion provision was concentrated in geographic areas. Uh, on the back of state restrictions that treat that that created so-called abortion deserts, abortion travel is not new. The division between uh, uh, states uh, clustered around abortion animus is is also not new. And beyond abortion, states have long disagreed about big issues from gambling to the entry to marriage for couples of the same sex, enacting laws that reflect policy preferences. Those disagreements expressed through state laws had not destroyed our federalist system. Now, I recognize that shield laws may go beyond permission to gamble, to terminate a pregnancy, to marry. But at the moment, these laws are exceptions to voluntary cooperation based on ease of process, not based on constitutional compliance. These stat the statutes that I've mentioned, the provisions that I've mentioned just now, the uniform laws, for instance, are based on shared goals. States remain free to enact policies that further their own legitimate interests when interests diverge among states, uniform standards on criminal and civil process lose their force. Moreover, in this new era of abortion regulation, shield laws are prophylactic. If states do not try to apply their laws extraterritorially, then the effects of shield laws will not be felt. Indeed, shield laws could disincentivize states like Georgia with fetal personhood provisions from applying ordinary criminal laws to people out of state terminating pregnancies, or could dissuade a state legislator ask a, potentially incentivize a state legislator to think twice about writing laws like SB8, um, that, but the, a law that, like SB8 that would apply to extraterritorial conduct. And on the level of constitutional compliance, current shield laws are written to comply with the full faith and credit clause, with the extradition clause. On the former, which arguably presents a, the more complicated set of questions, nothing keeps a state from entering default judgments or extending jurisdiction over someone who enters the state or has, frankly, has license in that state. So the future is messy. It is complicated. And apologies to Justice Alito. What we're looking at is not more workable. Uh, one of the factors that Justice Alito mentioned was a reason to overturn Roe and Casey. But I stopped short of making analogies to a different kind of civil war. I think it's an inapt and uh, 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 the wrong analogy to make. Um, and with that, I'll leave it there. Well, let me begin by thanking everyone associated with this event for putting it on uh, and all of you for attending. I'm really delighted to have the opportunity. This is my first time in Salt Lake City. What a fantastic place and uh, really a, just a phenomenal building and faculty. It's been a wonder, uh, wonderful experience coming here. Um, uh, I uh, am neither a con law maven nor a, uh, a bioethics expert nor an expert on reproductive rights, uh, rights. I regret that all of these things will probably quickly become clear as I delve into my remarks. So you may be wondering, what the hell is he doing here? Why did they invite him? The answer to that question is that I uh, am obsessed with the war on drugs. I'm a libertarian, and uh, I think the war on drugs is one of the worst things that's ever happened to this country. And uh, I recognize that um, the war on abortion is going to be a war on drugs. 
these are the two drugs that are typically used uh, in tandem to produce, to cause abortions. Uh, I have tr tried to memorize the names, but I fail. Mifeprestone and mesoprostol. So if you're going to prevent women from use, having medical abortions, and by the way, most abortions, my understanding is now either are performed medically, not surgically, or can be performed medically rather than surgery, especially within the first 10 to 12 weeks of the pregnancy, which is when most abortions uh, occur. These drugs are safe for use during that uh, period. Um, so if you're going to... Uh, regulate uh, abortion, you have to prevent women from getting access to these drugs. Well, we have uh, a history of trying to prevent people from getting access to restricted substances. It's called the war on drugs, and it has been a failure and a catastrophe uh, since the 1970s when it started. Uh, it has cost more than a trillion dollars. It has destroyed our liberties. It has militarized our police. It has estranged minority communities, contributed to millions of deaths and ruined tens of millions of Americans' lives. And the point of the column that I published in Health Affairs was that the war on abortion could take a similar turn. It could recreate the excesses of the war on drugs, essentially by opening a new front uh, on prohibition. Um, but it's not going to work. Just like the war on drugs has failed, the war on abortion will fail when it comes to regulating the access to these substances. Let me tell you one reason why. These are not the only two drugs that can be used to cause abortions. There is a third drug out there as well. It's called methotrexate. I'm curious, anybody here heard of methotrexate before? We have a few people who know about methotrexate. I take methotrexate, okay? It's a drug that has many, many, many uses. It's used to treat many cancers. It's used to treat uh, a variety of autoimmune diseases. Here's a list for them. So if you are going to prevent access to abortion-causing drugs, you're going to have to regulate access to methotrexate. That's going to have lots of unintended consequences for the millions of people, and I do mean millions, who take methotrexate every year. The story that's displayed on this slide provides one example. This is a story about a young woman uh, in um, Arizona. She takes methotrexate for a debilitating, painful, potentially crippling uh, arthritic condition. Uh, one day, her... Uh, pharmacist, after Arizona enacted its law prohibiting abortions, her pharmacist refused to refill her prescription for methotrexate. Why? Well, there was a chance that she might use the drug to abort a fetus, to end a pregnancy. And the pharmacist feared that if she used the drug for that purpose, that uh, he, I believe it was a he, would be potentially liable as an aider and a better of a felonious act. And so rather than take any chance, the pharmacist simply refused to fill the prescription. This is what you're looking at when you look at prohibiting access or restricting access to a drug that is used by millions of people for legitimate purposes, right? All kinds of unintended consequences. You're also staring failure directly in the face. Why? Because methotrexate is easy to get. It's available in Mexico, 
without a prescription, it's incredibly cheap. Uh, this little excerpt from a, a woman who blogs her travels says that she was able to get it without a prescription in Mexico for around 3.5 euros, which uh, looking today, I think that's about $3.5. Is that about right? Three and a half bucks. Uh, so uh, you're, if you're talking about regulating the supply of methotrexate, now you're talking about adding this drug to the list of things that we're wanting border agents to police, right? Is that what we're going to do? We're going to start having uh, drug-sniffing dogs trained to uh, discover supplies of methotrexate? Are we going to have police stopping women um, of pregnant, of childbearing ages on the highway and searching their vehicles to see if they have hidden supplies of methotrexate. Are we going to start doing things like this? Uh, if we don't, we're not going to limit access to these drugs uh, effectively. And if we do, the consequences will be um, even worse. Do we really want to create a black market for um, these medications? The general point that I wanna make is that the desirability of regulations depends upon far more than the desirability of the conduct that's at issue. You may really strongly oppose abortion, but you may equally oppose regulations that are designed to prevent women from having abortions because the consequences of those regulations may simply be too bad to endure. Uh, so, Support for regulations doesn't follow in any logical way from one's philosophical position on abortion. Instead, it requires one to consider all these messy empirical matters, and these messy empirical matters tend to weigh against states when it comes to prohibitions on access um, to substances. Um, in order to uh, in order to regulate access in this patchwork of regulations where some states support abortion access and others don't, states are going to have to start doing really draconian things. Let me offer marijuana um, as an example. Uh, my understanding is that uh, recreational marijuana is still illegal in Utah. Is that correct? Is correct. But it is legal right across the border in Nevada, right? And I checked and there is a, uh, what do they call it? A dispensary uh, in West Wendover. And I'm willing to, to bet that at least some people in this audience have driven to West Wendover. It's only what, about an hour and a half down highway 80 from here uh, to buy marijuana. Well, um, if you're one of these people, then you apparently think that you're within your rights to, uh, escape your home state's laws by going elsewhere, right? Well, um, your elected leaders, Utah's elected leaders might not share um, this opinion, but how can they stop you, right? They can't prevent you from going to Nevada and they can't prevent you from buying marijuana while you're there. And here's really the rub. They can say you're not allowed to bring it back into Utah with you, but as a practical matter, they can't stop you from doing that. Again, I'm willing to bet that at least a few people in this audience, either in person or online, 
have transported marijuana or marijuana THC containing substances back from Nevada in violation of the law. And here is the basic point. When you have a patchwork of regulations like we do relating to marijuana, the permissive states prevent the restrictive states from regulating conduct within the restrictive state's borders effectively. Everybody got this point? If I can buy marijuana next door, then the elected leaders of Utah cannot govern conduct in Utah as effectively as they otherwise could. In order to govern effectively, they have to start doing all kinds of terrible things. And they cannot expect help from other states. And here we get into the clash of the states. Uh, well, we replay the scenario that I just uh, described, going to Nevada to buy weed. We can replay that in the area of abortion because abortion is legal in Nevada. And Nevada has uh, an executive order that is a shield law. So Utahns can avoid the restrictions on abortion that exist here simply by traveling across state lines. And that has the same implications for the ability of the elected leaders of this state to control conduct within by residents of the state, the people who have the, they have the highest interest in governing, right? It, it, the simple availability of services elsewhere means that the government of Utah cannot regulate conduct as effectively as it might. Um, if it wants to be successful, it's going to have to enact uh, draconian measures. My home state of Texas is already embarking upon this, uh, this effort. Um, uh, uh, one of the things that's being done is to criminalize uh, conduct that occurs outside the state's borders. Let me give you an example that might make this concrete. Uh, Texas forbids abortions, but they're legal in New Mexico. Suppose I, uh, I have a daughter. Suppose I lend her my car so that she can go from Austin to New Mexico for an abortion. Um, when she returns, can she be arrested in Texas for murder? Well, Texas law, at least according to this pregnant woman who was driving in the HOV lane without a, uh, a non a uh, fetal passenger. I'm not sure what the right way to frame that was. Excuse me. She's a pregnant woman. She was in the HOV lane. She claimed that under Texas law, uh, the pregnant, the developing child was a human being. Therefore, there were two passengers in the car. Therefore, she was within her rights. I don't know where that's going, but you get the point. Um, uh, if Texas takes the position that a developing infant is a person, then my daughter, who leaves the state in my car to have an abortion, is going to another state to commit murder. And if she's doing that, can she be arrested for committing murder when she gets back? And can I be arrested for lending her my car as an accessory um, to murder? This is the way that things are going to happen. And the Texas Freedom Caucus um, is out there trying to accomplish this right now. They are th sending threatening letters to businesses, including law firms that promise to pay for the expenses of travel for their employees to get abortions um, elsewhere. Um, and um, this is going to put uh, a, a, have a great chilling effect uh, upon 
the willingness of these entities to um, support uh, abortion-related travel. Now, what does all this have to say? What does the Constitution have to say about all this? My first answer is, I don't really know, uh, because I'm not a con law guy. In the course of preparing these uh, uh, remarks, I discovered that the Constitution has Article 4, which regulates uh, the conduct of the states vis-a-vis -vis each other. It's not a subject that I had spent a lot of time thinking about before, but we really do have it. And it requires states to do certain things and to forbear from doing certain other things. Why does Article 4 exist? Well, there isn't much scholarship that actually explains this, but as usual, unconstrained by other views of an authoritative nature, I came up with the answer myself. Um, it's because the states confront problems of collective action. The framers knew that the success of the union depended upon affirmative cooperation among the states. It wasn't just enough that they refrain from attacking each other. They actually needed to help each other among other things, enjoy the benefit of their laws. And so they had to return fugitives, for example, who fled the jurisdiction, had to treat visitors and residents alike, couldn't discriminate against residents of other states, had to give full faith and credits to other states' judgments, right? These are affirmative acts of cooperation that are designed to make the union more successful than it would otherwise be uh, if the states were trying to maximize uh, their own um, uh, power irrespective of the consequences for other states. Um, the problem we face today, and why I'm more pessimistic than Rachel, is that cooperation has really broken down, okay? It's broken down in the area of abortion, but it's broken down everywhere. Um, the states can't solve collective action problems on their own. It requires Congress to do that. This is the problem with collective action problems, right? You can't solve them from below very often, but Congress isn't gonna solve, oops, I'm sorry, I'm out of time. I'll wrap this up very quickly. Congress is not going to control the state's successes when it comes to extraterritorial attempts to apply their laws. Congress is completely dysfunctional. Congress also doesn't give a damn about the general welfare of the country anymore. That's not what uh, our elected officials uh, spend their days and nights uh, thinking about. And, um, and it's not just abortion, right? It's that the same political divide that exists in the area of abortion exists in the area of religion, in the area of gun rights, gay rights, minority rights, immigration. Just think about all the policy dimensions along which we are currently fractured politically. If it was just abortion, well, I'd say we'd probably survive it intact. But abortion could be the match that sets off the powder keg given all these other um, potential lines of, uh, of division. Um, so I'm very pessimistic. You know, I, I, again, I want to finish up, but um, as a libertarian, I think that essentially everything good about our lives depends upon the rule of law. And in this country, I see the rule of law in tatters. Our institutions have taken a beating our politicians have small minds and terrible values, and too many people no longer think 
that we operate under the rule of law. They think we operate under the rule of politics. And this, I find just very worrisome. If we make it through the next election, uh, I think we'll be lucky. Uh, I hope I'm not, uh, I hope I'm not unduly pessimistic. Well, I hope I am unduly <laughs> pessimistic. With that, I'll turn it back to Rachel for her follow-up remark. On that cheery note, uh, <laughs> no, I, I, you know, I, I I'm, I'm going to be brief and I'm gonna watch my time a little bit better. Um, cause I just have a few minutes, you know, I think what motivates my response is the observation that in abortion regulation, there has always been a sizable gap between law and the books and abortion in practice. And that gap is growing larger. And it's just for the reasons that Professor Silver mentioned. Um, I think that there is a threat to the rule of law, but I also think that what's happening in the conversation around abortion regulation is a conversation about political action. And where is where are the political levers that might push or pull some state legislatures, state prosecutors, city officials, local DAs to make decisions about what they will and will charge, what they will or will do, will or will not do. And, and I, and I think a point of real agreement is that we are at a moment where that, where those questions are being shaped by the reality that, that has always been the reality for some segments of our population, that um, laws attempting to police abortion fail. They do not work very well. And when they work, we know who they work against, people without information, people of color, low-income people. Those are the people who are going to be surveilled penalized, policed. But as we enter a conversation about who is suffering under new abortion restrictions and who do states seek to protect, we're going to see that those state efforts to stop pills from entering borders via the mail, many of those efforts are going to fail. Again, they all, they not, they, not all of them will, but access to abortion Self-managed abortion, a group like Aid Access, where you can order abortion from a pharmacy in India and have it shipped to you in a week, week and a half for $300 less than a brick and mortar termination. Um, that's happening. As soon as SB8 uh, went into effect in Texas, the September before Dobbs was uh, uh, decided, Aid Access demands for self-managed abortion increased over a thousand percent by state by state residents. There are ways that that those questions are going to be what tests uh, the political questions that occur around abortion regulation. And my worry is that just as SBA didn't create a whole nation of SBA laws in other states for left and right causes, um, just in the way that it chilled providers from providing abortion services, but didn't have provider, you didn't see providers sued. Um, just as Georgia's personhood law hasn't resulted in ordinary criminal laws being used against people who go to uh, Kansas or people who travel to another state for abortion and come back. Um, 
as the proliferation of the what people thought would be the explosion of personhood laws hasn't happened. It's because there are political consequences to these provisions. And uh, it's not that that is a story of optimism necessarily, but it's a story of the dogfight that's politics on this issue and the ways in which that that those politics can sometimes be melded into questions of who has privilege and who doesn't. So as states consider constitutional arguments against their laws under uh, Article Article four provisions, as they considered ballot initiatives like the one in Kansas that preserved uh, constitutional protection for abortion provision by not precluding it, as Kentucky and Michigan go to the polls, I don't think that we're going to see wholesale shifts in abortion policies in some places, but I think we should expect surprises. And I actually and I think those conflicts and those debates actually get us away from talking about the rule of law, which is why these policies are going to have legs and be bought out in courts, going to be tested, but not necessarily create the crisis, create the revolution that asks us to consider who we are and what we expect from our elected officials. So I'm going to also end on a little bit of a bleak note. Is it on now? Okay. If I may, I'd like to give my follow-up remarks from here. They'll be brief, but I have a leg injury, so I'd rather sit. Um, you know, I, I, I'm hopeful that you're right as far as the continuing fracturing or the progressively increasing fracturing of the country. And there are reasons to think that it won't happen, the referendum in Kansas being the, the most obvious um, example. By the same token, um, the question as to what will happen is really empirical at root, and it's very hard uh, to get your arms around because you're really asking, you know, what event sets off a, a, a re an uprising, a revolution? What is it? Sometimes we have obvious potential triggers like elections. Elections coordinate people's expectations and uh, are easy to uh, create collective actions around. But sometimes the triggers are, you know, things that we don't um, expect to happen. And the prospect that abortion could be such a trigger is something that I think has to be taken seriously. And the way I'll, I'll frame it is by asking, why do we see shield laws and, extra, and attempts to apply laws extraterritorially in this area and not in as far as I know, other areas like the war on drugs, for example, we now live in a patchwork society where you can buy recreational marijuana across the border in Nevada, but not here. But as far as I know, there are no shield laws in Nevada that attempt to prevent or protect the marijuana dispensaries there from liability under Utah's laws. Uh, when they sell marijuana to people here in Utah or to go there and then come back. Um, nor, as far as I know, are there any what you might call sword laws enacted in Utah that would attempt to, you know, impose liability upon retailers in other states who knowingly serve the citizens of this state. Something makes abortion different. I would, I'm not sure I can say unique because I don't know if there may be other policy areas where we similarly have this clash of sword laws and shield laws. 
but it's certainly different. And, um, and it doesn't have to be that all of the states necessarily um, start bumping, you know, heads or with each other. My home state of Texas by itself could easily spark some kind of a conflagration, right? It's a solidly Republican state and it doesn't really give a damn about what goes on in the rest of the country. It's a country unto itself, as I'm sure you've all heard. So events there could have, you know, ramifications um, elsewhere. And I'm not confident that they will. The, the real problem is I'm not confident that they won't, right? Wish I could be confident of the latter. So I just push your button there. Green means go. Um, so I, I, look, uh, as someone who grew up in Texas, and as you know, Texas was its own country for a <laughs> period of time, the Republic of Texas. I know that because we had to learn Texas history every year in elementary school. Um, but, uh, you know, Texas has been an innovator in anti-abortion policy. And I don't disagree. I mean, it, I think that's what's challenging for me in terms of this de debate, because there's, there's, there's quite a lot that I agree is possible. And, um, and, and there are footprints there. You could see what that trajectory looks like as far as abortion being different. Um, you know, here I'm thinking of the Dobbs opinion where Justice Alito says, I'm not talking about any other right protected under the substantive due process clause, uh, substantive due process right. I'm not talking about any other 14th Amendment right. I'm not talking about marriage. I'm not talking about contraceptives. I'm not talking about family. I'm not talking about travel. Just abortion. Why? Because abortion is special. Abortion is different. Abortion includes protection for fetal life. And Justice Thomas in concurrence says, really? I get rid of all of it. Uh, why not scrap the entire substantive analysis of due process? So there is this tension that you put your finger on abortion exceptionalism, abortion mainstreaming is about how different really is abortion. And, you know, I think that on the side of it being different, unlike marijuana potentially or other issues, I think that it's clear that for, um, States like Texas legislators are not just interested who are passing or or support legislation against abortion. Their their end goal, the end game, is not just to ban abortion in Texas; it's to ban abortion everywhere. And so that I think does shape questions about abortion policy in our country in ways that are distinguishable from marijuana or from gambling. Um, we don't, you know, unlike prohibition, gambling hasn't attracted the kind of let's ban drinking, gambling, filling everywhere. Um, though you certainly could make an analogy to what states did under DOMA and in the marriage equality conversations that led up to Obergefell. But I guess I just push back to say that, you know, there is also an argument that abortion is part of a fabric of other choices, decisions, rights that implicate um, uh, 
not just contraceptives, but fundamental questions about how people govern their intimate family sexual lives uh, with implications for their long-term and short-term health. And I worry about saying that abortion is so different because I think it then doesn't allow us to see how these various interests are connected or implicate each other. Well, just one quick thought. Oh. Again, it, it, it's interesting to me what makes um, uh, abortion different. And, and I, I don't think the answer has to do with the protection of fetal life, um, except potentially as that feeds into religious beliefs that people hold. Um, because what you just mentioned that there are differences in attitudes toward um, uh, how we treat ourselves that the government sometimes stick their noses into. One of the obvious contexts is end of life, right? Again, there are some states that now have statutes that entitle people to control the terms on which they die, death with dignity statutes. But again, I don't know of any shield laws or sword laws that arise with respect to that. And that is ending life, right? I can go from Texas to Oregon, I guess it is, that has one of these laws. And I can take advantage of that statute. And there's no risk that somebody who helps me get to Oregon because I can't get there myself will be accused in Texas of aiding and abetting a felony by helping me kill myself, right? So it's not just taking life or ending life. It is something about this particular activity that really has people up in arms and I wish I had a, a better sense of, of what it is, but, but I don't. Yeah. I mean, it's a, it's in some ways it's a fascinating conversation because I could agree that abortion is different and different in other ways, but we might disagree about what exceptionalizes abortion. What are the consequences of exceptionalizing abortion at the end of the day? Does it kick off the kind of the self-reflection of a nation about its political commitments, the rule of law, the role of elected? I, I'm not supposed to be talking in, I'm sorry, but, uh, but, or does it, you know, does it get subsumed into other issues or other sensibilities because it is about pregnancy, because it's about pregnant people's bodies, because it's about, you know, does it get sidelined or marginalized, even in its sexualized status for being something that is not, um, doesn't have the, 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 the power to really call to question these bigger issues on the rule of law. Um, this has been a great debate. I, I, I really, we're not going to clap yet, but we'll clap in the end. So we have a bunch of, I mean, I don't think we'll get through these questions in 30 minutes, but I'll, I'll try. So the first one is um, another messy example, airport hubs, Delta and Atlanta and Salt Lake City, American and Texas. The question is, can physicians who perform legal abortion be subject to uh, or assertion of jurisdiction the moment they touch down in a restrictive state. Tag, you're it. Tag, you're it. 
As far as I know, the answer would be yes, they can be served with process and then they would be required to appear or else face a default judgment entered against them. Uh, beyond that, um, I don't know. Yeah, no, I think that that's right. That I think that none of the shield laws. So when you providers who are asking questions about shield laws are, are told, you know, that it's some of the risks that I mentioned that this, if you have a, you know, <laughs> if you have a layover in Austin, you know, not Austin, but if you have a, a layover in Texas and Texas has uh, a law that, you know, that you could be served notice, you could be subject to suit in Texas, and there's nothing that Massachusetts or New York or California or Delaware or New Jersey can necessarily do about that. If you have a license in that state, you can be subject to jurisdiction, the jurisdiction of a state medical board. This is a great question because it brings to mind a set of complications that are very reminiscent of the war on drugs, but that had not occurred to me at all because right What's going to start happening once people realize that this can be done is that you're going to have people who start keeping track of the whereabouts of abortion providers in other states, right? There's this fellow who tracks Elon Musk's plane wherever it goes, right? Um, well, now we're going to have people tracking the, the locations of abortion providers and seeing when they're going to be in the airports and states where they can be sued. And, you know, it's, it, it will happen. All right. Uh, second one, um, it says for Dean Rebuchet, I think it can be for both of you. People can be prosecuted for buying a gun out of state and bringing it home. Why would buying abortion pills from a different state to bring home not have the same result? It seems like states can and will regulate pills. I So I think they, they can, they will, and they are regulating pills in that way. States are passing laws that prohibit the distribution, carrying of medication, abortion pills within the state. And again, that is, if you are, that is the state exerting its power within its borders. Um, so that, you know, the, the question there for me is not, can the state, um, ban the distribution or carrying of medication abortion pills within its state. The, the inroad to that argument is that the state is somehow preempted from banning abortion by a federal law or regulation. And there, without going into too much detail, the argument would be that the Food and Drug Administration, a federal agency, has closely regulated mifepristone, the first drug in a medication abortion, um, applying a RIMS that uh, is it was that 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 closely and and for many decades people argued overly restricted based on efficacy and safety concerns, but that that policy in allowing mifepristone to go on the drug market um, to terminate a pregnancy, that determination of efficacy and safety preempts states contrary determination that the drug is not safe, uh, shouldn't be allowed in the state. Now, there's lots of problems with that argument, least of which if you take it in Texas, it's ultimately going to go to the Fifth Circuit and then Supreme Court and then you're going to lose anyway. But the, you know, putting that aside, without a preemption argument or some other problem with that state regulation, either state law or federal law, 
there's nothing to keep Texas from doing exactly what it's doing, which is trying to outlaw the transport or the carrying within state of a drug. In fact, just recently, and if I'm talking too much, just give me a wink. Um, Recently, Mississippi has made the argument in a case on preemption that the Comstock law, an old vice law applies, which bans uh, any abortifacient being mailed, uh, the U.S. Uh, common carrier carrying and having uh, uh, abortion pills mailed. Now, that that is complicated because case law suggests that that applies to unlawful abortion, but that's still complicated. All to say, The question for me is not can states or will states, they will and they have and they will continue, but how are they actually going to police those pills? And that's where I think Professor Silver's uh, remarks are really apt. Um, What are states going to do? Mass warrants to open people's packages, uh, car searches, border patrols, um, emergency, you know, so it's the practicality. Michelle Oberman has some really good writing on this, that it's going to catch some people and those people are going to be the most, uh, most vulnerable, the most marginalized, but these laws are not on off switches enacting them doesn't mean they work in the ways that states intend them to. So anyway. Uh, A question for Professor Silver. Does gender play a role in which medications are able to be sold over the counter? And would that violate gender discrimination laws as well? Well, another subject that I don't know much about (laughs) gender discrimination laws. Um, Obviously gender plays a role in the extent to which drugs are prescribed. There are some drugs that are prescribed more often for women or almost exclusively to women than to men. That by itself cannot be a violation of any law. Uh, I'm, I'm guessing that the question must be something like, um, can women who receive say methotrexate, be made to show or or to pass standards that would not be applied to men who receive methotrexate. And I do not know the answer to that question, but my hunch is that uh, the answer would be yes, that the states have great freedom to regulate uh, the activities of pharmacists. Um, uh, Again, there might be some preemption issue here, although I don't know of one. But I think the answer would be yes, that state laws, as long as they have some reasonable basis, would be um, uh, upheld despite some discriminatory impact. But I have to emphasize, it's not going to suffice to require women to jump higher hurdles than men because men can just buy drugs and give them to women. Right. I can stockpile my supply of methotrexate and become a black market dealer. Um, So, you know, what is the point? Right. It's not going to work. Yeah. So the the Biden administration through the HHS did issue guidance to pharmacies to remind them that under their civil rights obligations, they can't discriminate on the basis of sex or pregnancy. And that's been challenged in court of whether or not that's within the authority of the HHS to issue that guidance. But it is, it is the case that pharmacies may not discriminate, um, 
based on gender pregnancy. And, but that's in the dispensation you come in, I'll give you a prescription, but not me because I'm a, a woman of childbearing age. Well, I have a gender that's not your gender. And that difference of treatment, um, you know, could be the basis of sex discrimination, but there are, as you suggest, a lot of steps to get there. Yeah. I just, I don't know that area well enough to take a a position on it, but I can, again, I, my view is it's just not going to work. Yeah. Right. But I agree. I mean, so even in the, even in the area of telehealth for abortion in the half the country that allows virtual clinics to operate, which are entirely no brick and mortar abortion on demand is an example operates in 21 States, asynchronous intake three to five days, 300 to $400 less than a brick and mortar, um, uh, service and entirely online. And, you know, they track people's location with IP addresses, but still there's mail forwarding, there's VPNs, there's any way to, you know, sending it to Professor Silver, uh, having him send it to you. Um, but, in, but he lives in Texas, so that's not a good idea. So, but the, but the point is there's lots of way that I, this black market idea, and then there's going to be reaction to that. There are already emerging fake websites, fake clinics that offer virtual services that you're never going to get bills in the mail or, um, yeah. And the police will set them up, right? Precisely so that women who want to get abortion medications will go to those websites and reveal themselves as people who want those substances. That's the war on drugs replaying itself again in this context. The more you talk, the more convinced I am that this is going to be <laughs> uglier than any anyone imagines because every strategy will have a counter and it will be, it will generate a further attempt at regulation and you already know more about the cleverness that people are willing or have displayed in getting around these things than I do. It's it's going to be terrible. Okay, uh, on that note, um, so I probably should have started with this question. Uh, it's, I'm not clear on the subject of your disagreement. You both said one of you is optimistic and the other is pessimistic <laughs> about what precisely about the constitutionality of abortion shield laws or something else. That's a, I don't know. I, I mean, I, I think I started, I think I made that statement and I think it's because when before in our conversations before today, I read the last paragraph of your remarks, the, you know, we're going to all burn and the rule of law is dead paragraph. (laughs) And I was like, wow, okay. I'm not quite there, but, but, but in all seriousness, I think it's because even my quote optimism is tinged with pessimism, but I, I don't think that, I think that we disagree that, um, Shield laws may be a symptom of what is an incoming, uh, 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 an encroaching, um, and again, I don't like this analogy, civil war of uh, based on abortion. Um, and it's not, and it, 
I, I say that somewhat circumspect because the article I mentioned with my two colleagues is called the new abortion battlegrounds. <laughs> and it's all about how this is a protracted long and, and, uh, uh, um, deep fight. Um, but I, I, I guess I, I, I worry that, um, it, it, that the rule, that principles of the rule of law and our, our faith in our institutions, um, we are still some ways actually engaging in questions that get at those core principles. So that's not, that's not optimism, but well, I didn't mention everything that was in that last paragraph that okay. Rachel read because I just ran out of time, but I will now. Right? <laughs> I already said that one of my concerns is that the rule of law is in tatters, but I'm not only concerned about the fact that these um, partisan disagreements exist. It's the context larger that also matters. So I have in my remarks here, the federal government is thoroughly corrupt and many state governments are too. That's part of the context. Inflation is rampant. Stock market has tanked. Federal deficit is too large for anyone in this room to comprehend. Tens of millions of people are struggling to make ends meet. And then there is the urban rural divide, which I think is um, given far too little weight as for its potential to disrupt our politics. In my home state, the urban areas, Texas, uh, Dallas, Houston, Austin, San Antonio, El Paso, maybe a few Fort Worth, a few other places, um, those places contribute 75% of the economic uh, product of the state, but the state is so badly gerrymandered that their political power is considerably uh, less. At what point do urban dwellers say, we've had enough, we're not gonna take this and start doing things that are you know, disruptive? Who knows, right? My point isn't that we have all these divides, although we do have them, is that this context is terrible, right? It's the, the abortion could be the spark just because there's so much tinder around waiting to catch fire. You know, uh, I wish, uh, again, I wish I understood the empirics of it better. I'm just very worried. All right. So another question about um, the Constitution. So what about Article 4? Do shield laws fundamentally, fundamentally violate it? So I, I do not think they violate Article 4 and that they don't violate the extradition clause because they don't apply to people who are um, fleeing from justice, which it's pretty clear from case law that it's that that's the standard that sets apart constitutional extradition and non-constitutional extradition. And I, I have to admit to you that I teach healthcare finance and regulation, family law and contracts, not con law. So I too have tried to skill up <laughs> on, on article four, but for full faith and credit clause, I do think it's, you know, I think that if the, the laws and, and, California actually does this. I think 1666 has a mention of not recognizing a judgment that I think gets into full faith and credit territory. Um, the rest of the laws just speak to subpoena and deposition and investigations. They're not talking about a state refusing to recognize an out of state judgment. Um, 
That said, there might be exceptions to the full faith and credit clause's applicability, such as public policy or jurisdiction that haven't been interpreted in this context that might apply. But, you know, I think there's certainly a tension. Um, and so I think the Article 4 protections um, are not shield laws are not in violation of those protections, but I can't disagree that they are um, counter to the type of cooperation and comedy, uh, comedy between states that Article 4 seeks to strengthen, to enable. Yeah, I, I don't think the shield laws violate Article 4. I don't think the sword laws violate Article 4, though, either. Mm -hmm. um, and I think the real problem is that Article 4 really relies on Congress to step in and curb the worst excesses of the states. And when we just don't have a Congress that's going to do that. So, you know, that's that's the problem with the structure. I've been on a lot of these panels. This is the most dangerous question. So I'll, I'll throw that late in the game. Um, if a case makes it to the Supreme Court concerning a shield law, what is your prediction about the legal issue the case will be about? Uh, Boy. I'm always wrong about these, by the way. You're what? I'm always wrong about predictions. What would the case be about? So... Very good question. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I mean, in the I, the way I've thought about it is, you know, so the extraterritorial arguments against the Texas Freedoms Congress bill or Missouri's bill that would seek to apply to out-of-state providers, and the Supreme Court is hearing a case about extraterritorial reach and the dormant commerce clause, is, is what it does to those interstate relations, um, as well as the right to travel, privileges and immunities, uh, citizenship, other questions. I could see the reverse application to a shield law that um, it is essentially Massachusetts and particularly Massachusetts with its regardless of the patient location language being subject to the same critique that Massachusetts is trying to apply its law extraterritorially um, by not recognizing. And I mean, it's a different argument, but that, you know, abortion is clearly commerce. So it's clearly covered by the dormant commerce clause. And it's whether or not there's any teeth to that extraterritorial provision to strike down a law as running afoul. Um, and, but in other, other arguments, I, I don't think that there's potentially a full faith and credit argument in the California context that I mentioned. Um, I don't think it's an argument of state power. Um, I think those dormant commerce clause and full faith and credit. But again, this is where I would want uh, one of my constitutional law colleagues uh, to weigh in on, um, on other 
arguments, causes of action that could be taken by the state of Texas against the state of Massachusetts based on questions of federalism, state, state, interstate power, um, that would, that would be live issues for, um, for the Supreme court. Yeah, I obviously don't know the answer, but I think it's going to have something to do with pigs. Yeah, the pork case is the, the one case. I was referencing. The, you all aware of this case that's now in front of the Supreme Court? California has set terms that must be met in, for the raising of brood sows right. in order to sell pork products in California. And this is true regardless of where the brood sows happen to be, and very few of them are in California. So basically, by limiting access to its markets, California is trying to set standards for the raising of pigs throughout the country. Whatever the court does in this case is going to ramify to the context right. of abortion. I don't know if it would affect the shield laws so much as what I've been calling the sword laws, where states like Texas attempt to influence what can happen abroad by saying, you know, it's, it's a crime in this state to perform an abortion on one of our residents, even if it's legal in your state. I don't know, but. I argue with my co-authors about this because I tend to think that it, it might um, in that when I read that case and if the court answers the question, you know, essentially the question is, does a does it is extraterritorial is extraterritorial reach under the dom, dominant commerce clause? Is that a real thing or is that dead? Like that's the question they're going to answer. And if it's a real thing, it's not dead. Then I think that Massachusetts shielding its providers from discipline, civil, criminal penalties across the country, no matter what. Texas says about what the standard of care is and where it occurs and how it occurs is in a sense, Massachusetts. Interesting. Revive, you know, applying what it deems as the location of care for other states. That's a, it's a, there's a, a few other steps there that are unlike the sword laws, but. Um, Could be very well, very well put. I think this is the last one we're going to do. Um, how could it not violate the full faith and credit clause to say, we recognize a judgment, but we prohibit anyone from enforcing it? Isn't that an empty form of recognition? And does a law's constitutionality turn on legislative labels? So just to be clear, the laws, except for this one ambiguous provision and one bill of a suite of bills in California, are clear that they do not apply to judgments. So they don't apply to decisions in other courts. And in fact, one of the things that shield laws haven't, cannot do um, under their, their current language is keep a state from, just as mentioned, entering a default judgment against someone. Uh, because to be clear, these law, laws don't target patients at the moment. So shield laws don't speak to patients. They talk about providers and those who assist them. But Texas can, if it has jurisdiction, uh, can claim jurisdiction, can enter um, an, a default in, default judgment. And um, yeah, then it becomes a question. Of well, put aside, putting aside the airport tag you're it scenario, um, I don't 
think we're going to have a lot of problems of this particular type. And the reason for that is that the Supreme Court's cases on personal jurisdiction make it clear that the actions that support personal jurisdiction must be ones taken by the potential defendant. Those actions must be steps by the potential defendant that bring the defendant into contact with the territory of the state. Uh, so it's not enough, in other words, knowing that the consequences of one's actions, the effects tests, might be felt in a particular state. Um, the case is uh, uh, Fiore, let's, uh, I'm drawing a blank, Walden versus Fiore out of the Supreme Court in which an F, uh, a governmental agent, a police officer in Georgia, seized money that was that belonged to two gamblers who were returning, I think, from Puerto Rico to uh, Nevada and knew that they were in Nevada and afterwards got sued in Nevada by these people. And the Supreme Court said no jurisdiction. It wasn't enough to know that the gamblers were from Nevada. You, the defendant, the police officer, had to have actually taken steps to come into contact with the forum. That's not going to happen in any of these cases, right? The the providers are all going to be in abortion permitting states. They're not going to have contact. The fact that they operate on people from those states is not going to be enough. So I don't think there's going to be personal jurisdiction in a lot of these cases. And if there's no personal jurisdiction, there's no full faith and credit issue, right? Because the, the judgments are not entitled to enforcement. Um, so barring again, the clever, I found you at the airport in, in Austin cases, um, I just don't see this as being a problem in all likelihood. Yeah. It's either physical contact or some other. So this is a lot of providers do have licenses in various States. And so there's a question of like, do they need to give up a medical license in another state? Because that could be a way in which, a Maybe. state could assert jurisdiction if they have a web, another live question, but I'll leave it to civil procedure experts. If you have a website because you're a virtual clinic and you are advertising your services and you have language on there that says, you know, helping those who need it most, or, you know, that's something that targets that could be interpreted as targeting people who live in Texas. That's true. Serving a market intentionally yeah. is a, can be a source of uh, grounds for personal jurisdiction. Um, well, maybe there's more to it than I initially think, but yeah. we'll see. Well, please uh, help join me in thanking our speakers today. Thank you all for coming. And um, thanks, Dean Rebuchet and Professor Silver for the great remarks. <laughs>